welcome to another bonus edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Over the last few Fridays, I've been reading from Richard Watley's classic book on the introduction to Christian evidences. And on this particular episode, I'll be picking up at Lesson 6, in which Watley continues his discussion of miracles. Can we of these days really find sufficient proof, some may say, and such proof as is within the reach of ordinary Christians for believing that miracles really were performed, which we never saw, but which are recorded in books as having happened nearly 1,800 years ago? Is it not expecting a great deal to require us to believe that there were persons who used to cure blindness and other diseases by a touch or a word, and raise the dead and still the raging of the sea, and feed a multitude with a few loaves? Certainly these things are in themselves hard to believe, and if we were to find in some ancient book accounts of some great wonders which led to no effects that exist at this day, and had nothing to do with the present state of things among us, we might well be excused for doubting or disbelieving such accounts. But the case of the Christian miracles is not of this kind. They are closely connected with something which we do see before us this day, namely with the existence of the Christian religion in so many places throughout the world. A man cannot indeed be fairly required to believe anything very strange and unlikely, except when there is something still more strange and unlikely on the opposite side. Now that is just the case with respect to the Christian miracles. For wonderful as the whole gospel history is, the most wonderful thing of all is that a Jewish peasant should have succeeded in changing the religion of the world. That he should have succeeded in doing this without displaying any miracles would have been more wonderful than all the miracles that are recorded and that he should have accomplished all this by means of pretended miracles when none were really performed, would be most incredible of all. So that those who are unwilling to believe anything that is strange cannot escape doing so by disbelieving the gospel, but will have to believe something still more strange if they reject the gospel. And it's the same in many other cases, as well as in what relates to religion. We are often obliged to believe, at any rate, in something that is very wonderful, in order to avoid believing in something else that is still more wonderful. For instance, it is well known that in the British Isles and several other parts of the world, there are great beds of seashells found near the tops of hills, sometimes several thousand feet above the sea. Now, it is certainly very hard to believe that the sea should ever have covered those places which now lie so far above it. And yet we are compelled to believe this because we cannot think of any other way that is not far more incredible by which those shells have been deposited there. And so it is with the gospel history. We are sure that the Christian religion does now exist and has overspread most of the civilized world, and we know that it was not first introduced and propagated, like that of Muhammad, by force of arms. To believe that it was received and made its way without miracles would be to believe something more miraculous, if we may so speak, than all the miracles that our books record. But some people may say that the ancient Jews and pagans who so readily believed in magical arts and the power of demons must have been very weak and credulous men, and that therefore they may have given credit to tales of miracles without making any careful inquiry. Now, there is indeed no doubt that they were weak and credulous, but this weakness and credulity would never have led them to believe what was against their early prejudices and expectations and wishes. Quite the contrary. The more weak and credulous a man is, the harder it is to convince him of anything that is opposite to his habits of thought and inclinations. He will readily receive without proof anything that falls in with his prejudices, and will be disposed to hold out against any evidence that goes against them. Now all the prejudices of the Jews and the pagans were against the religion that Jesus and his apostles taught, and accordingly, we might have expected that the most credulous of them should have done just what our histories tell us they did, that is, resolve to reject the religion at any rate, 
and readily satisfy themselves with some weak and absurd way of accounting for the miracles. But credulous as they were about magic, the enemies of Jesus would never have resorted to that pretense if they could have denied the facts. They would certainly have been more ready to maintain, if possible, that no miracle had taken place, than to explain them as performed by magic, because this pretense only went to make out that Jesus, notwithstanding his miracles, might possibly not come from God. Whereas if they could have shown that he or his apostles had attempted to deceive people by pretended miracles, this would at once have held them up to scorn as impostors. We read in chapter 9 of John's Gospel that the Jewish rulers narrowly examined into the reality of a miracle performed by Jesus on a man that was born blind. This is exactly what we may be sure must have been done in the case of other miracles also. And if the enemies of Jesus could have succeeded in detecting and exposing any falsehood or trick, they would have been eager to do so because they would have been thus sure to overthrow his pretensions at once. It is plain, therefore, that the weakness and credulity of the people of those days would be very far from disposing them to readily give credit to miracles in favor of a religion that was opposed to their prejudices, and that on the contrary, such persons would be likely, some of them obstinately, to reject the religion, and others only gradually and slowly to receive it, after having carefully searched the ancient prophecies and found that these went to confirm it. Now this is just the account that our histories give. It appears certain, then, that the unbelieving Jews and pagans of those days did find it impossible to throw any doubt on the fact of the miracles having really been performed, because that would have enabled them easily to expose Jesus to contempt as an impostor. Their acknowledging the miracles and attributing them to magic, as the unbelieving Jews do to this day, shows that the evidence for them, after the strictest scrutiny by the most bitter enemies, was perfectly undeniable at the time and place when they were said to be performed. Lesson 7, Miracles Part 3 There are persons, some of whom you may perhaps meet with, who, though they are believers in Christianity, yet will not allow that the miracles recorded in Scripture are any ground for their belief. They are convinced, they will tell you, that Jesus Christ came from God because no one ever spoke like this man. They find their religion so pure and admirable in itself, and they feel it so well suited to their wants and to the wants of all mankind and so full of heavenly wisdom and goodness that they need no other proof of its being from heaven. But as for miracles, these, they will tell you, are among the difficulties to be got over. They believe them as part of their religion from finding them recorded in the Bible. But they would have believed the gospel as easily or more easily without them. The miracles, they will say, were indeed a proof to those who lived at the time and saw them, but to us of the present day who only read of them, they are part of our faith and not part of the evidence of our faith. For it is a greater trial of faith, they say, to believe in such wonderful works as Jesus is said to have performed, than to believe that such wise and excellent doctrine as he delivered was truly from heaven. Now, there is indeed much truth in a part of what these persons say, but they do not take a clear view of the whole subject of evidence. 
It is indeed true that there is, as they observe, great weight in the internal evidence of Christianity, that is, the reasons for believing it from the character of the religion itself. The more you study it, the more strongly you will perceive that it is such a religion as no man would have been likely to invent. But there are many different kinds of evidence for the same truth, and one kind of evidence may the most impress one man's mind and another another's. And among the rest, the Christian miracles certainly are a very decisive proof of the truth of Christ's religion to anyone who is convinced, as you have seen there is reason to be, that they really were performed. Of course, there is more difficulty for us in making out this point than there was for men who lived at the same time and places with Jesus and his apostles. But when this point has been made out and we do believe the miracles, they are no less a proof of the religion to us than to those early Christians. It is quite a mistake to suppose that the difficulty of proving any fact makes that fact, when it is proved, a less convincing proof of something else. For example, to take an instance formally given, those who live in the neighborhood of the places where great beds of seashells are found near the tops of hills and have seen them there themselves are convinced by this, that at some time or other, those beds must have been under the sea. Now, a person who lives at a distance from such places has more difficulty than those on the spot in making out whether there are any such beds of shells. He has to inquire of travelers or of those who have conversed with them and to consult books and perhaps examine pieces of the rock containing some of the shells. But when once he is fully satisfied that there are such beds of seashells, this is just as good a proof to him as to the others, that the sea must have formerly covered them. And so also in respect of the Christian miracles. The difficulty we may have in deciding whether they were really performed does not make them, when we are convinced that they really happened, a less decisive proof that the Christian religion is from God. But as for the difficulty of believing in anything so strange and wonderful as those miracles, you should remember that every difficulty, as was observed before, should be weighed against that on the opposite side. Now, the difficulty of believing the miracles recorded in our sacred books is much less than the opposite difficulty of believing that the Christian religion was established without miracles. That a Jewish peasant should have overthrown the religion of the civilized world without the aid of any miracles is far more miraculous, at least more incredible, than anything that our books relate. And it will appear still more incredible if you remember that this wonderful change was brought about by means of an appeal to miracles. Jesus and his apostles did certainly profess to display miraculous powers in proof of their being sent from God, and this would have been the greatest hindrance to their propagating a new religion if they had really possessed no such powers, because this pretense would have laid them open to detection and ridicule. But there is a distinction between our religion and all others, which is often overlooked. Almost all religions have some miraculous pretensions connected with them. That is, miracles are recorded to have been performed in support of some pagan religion among some people who already believe it. But you will not find that any religion except ours was ever introduced and introduced among enemies by miraculous pretensions. Ours is the only faith that ever was founded on an appeal to the evidence of miracles. And we have every reason to believe that no such attempt ever did or could succeed if the miracles were not really performed. The difficulty, therefore, of believing that the Christian religion was propagated by means of miracles is nothing in comparison of the difficulty of believing that it could have been propagated without any. Indeed, we have every reason to believe that many more miracles must have been performed than are particularly related. Several particular cases, indeed, of our Lord's miracles were described, but besides these, we are told in Matthew 12 and 14 of great multitudes of sick people being brought to Jesus and that he healed them all. 
So also throughout the book of Acts, besides particular miracles related as being done by the apostles, we're also told generally of their not only performing miracles, but also of bestowing miraculous powers on great numbers of disciples. And we also find St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 speaking of this as something well known, that miracles were the signs of an apostle. And in all these books, we find miracles not boastfully dwelt upon or described as something unusual, but alluded to, as well known to the persons to whom the books were addressed. But besides the accounts given in the Christian scriptures, we must be sure from the very nature of the case that the apostles could never have even gained a hearing, at least among the Gentiles, if they had not displayed some extraordinary and supernatural power. Fancy a few poor Jewish fishermen, tent makers, and peasants going into one of the great Roman or Grecian cities whose inhabitants were proud of the splendid temples and beautiful images of their gods, which had been worshipped time out of mind by their ancestors. They were proud, too, of their schools of philosophy, where those reputed the wisest men among them discoursed on the most curious and sublime subjects to the youth of the noblest families. And then fancy these Jewish strangers telling them to cast away their images as an abominable folly, to renounce the religion of their ancestors, to reject with scorn the instructions of their philosophers, and to receive instead as a messenger from heaven a Jew of humble station who had recently been put to the most shameful death. How do you think these men would have been received? Well, you cannot doubt that all men would have scorned them and ridiculed or pitied them as madmen. We should remember that the gospel was preached by men of a nation which the Greeks and Romans looked down upon as barbarian, and whose religion, especially, they scorned and detested for being so different from their own. And not only did the apostles belong to this despised nation, but they were the outcasts of that very nation, being rejected and abhorred by the chief part of their Jewish brethren. If, therefore, they had come among the Gentiles teaching the most sublime religious doctrine and trusting merely to the excellence of what they taught, it is impossible that they should even had a hearing. It is not enough to say that no one would have believed them, but no one would have even listened to them if they had not first roused men's serious attention by working, as we are told they did, remarkable miracles. Afterwards, indeed, when the gospel had spread, so as to excite general attention, many men would be likely to listen to the preaching of it, even by persons who did not pretend to any miraculous power, but who merely bore witness to the miracles they had seen, giving proof at the same time that they were not false witnesses by their firmness in facing persecution. And this was certainly a good ground for believing their testimony. For though men may be mistaken as to the opinions which they sincerely hold, they could not be mistaken as to such facts as the Christian miracles which they professed themselves eyewitnesses, as the apostles, for instance, were of their master's resurrection. And it is not to be conceived that men would expose themselves to dangers and tortures and death in attesting false stories which they must have known to be false. If there had been any well-contrived imposture in respect of pretended miracles, it is impossible but that some persons at least, out of the many hundreds brought forward as eyewitnesses, would have been induced by threats, tortures, or bribes to betray the imposture. There were many, therefore, who received the gospel, and with good reason, on such testimony as this, as soon as they could be brought to listen to and examine it. But in the first instance, the apostles could not have brought any of the Gentiles, at least to listen to them, if they had not begun by working evident miracles themselves. A handful of Jewish strangers of humble rank would never have obtained a hearing among the most powerful and most civilized and proudest nations of the world if they had not at first roused their attention by the display of some extraordinary powers.
Lesson 8, Wonders and Signs It is plain for the reasons which have been put before you that the apostles must have roused men's attention and gained themselves a hearing by performing, as our books tell us they did, many wonderful works. And these works, as well as those of Jesus, which they related, must have been such as to admit of no mistake, either about the facts or about their being really superhuman. Else, surrounded as they were by enemies and with men's prejudices opposed to them, it seems impossible they could have been believed or even attended to. If, for instance, there were a report of some sick men having been miraculously cured by them, but such a report as to leave a doubt either as to the fact of the cure having taken place or as to the manner of the cure, that is, whether the man might not have recovered by natural means, any such doubt would have been enough to shut men's ears against them. And besides this, it was necessary that the miracles should be both so numerous and so various in kind as to exceed the powers generally supposed to belong to magicians. For most persons seem to have thought that a magician might, through the aid of demons, be enabled to perform some miracles and not others of a different kind. We find it related accordingly that Jesus not only healed the lame and blind and sick, some present and some absent, grown persons and children, but also that he raised the dead fed a multitude with a few loaves, stilled the waves and winds at his bidding, blasted a tree at his word, changed water into wine, etc. And this seems to have been no more than a necessary condescension to the weakness of men's minds in those days. They did not at once conclude that he must be a true prophet from his working one miracle, but said, When the Christ comes, will he do more miracles than which this man does? So also Nicodemus says, No man can perform these miracles, except God be with him. And the disciples who had witnessed so many miraculous cures were astonished, we are told, upon finding Jesus calming the storm. What manner of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And we find the same variety also in the miraculous gifts possessed by the apostles and bestowed by them on other Christians, as we find in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere. You should observe, too, that it would not have satisfied men's minds merely to see some extraordinary occurrence unless it were also something plainly done by the apostles as a sign testifying that they were divine messengers. It would have been impossible for them, in the midst of adversaries, to take advantage of some remarkable event, calling it a miracle, and to explain it so, as to favor their own pretensions. This has often been done, indeed, in support of some religion or some doctrine, which men already believe or are inclined to believe. The pagans were, many of them, ready enough to attribute anything wonderful to a miraculous interference of Jupiter or some of their other gods. And so also Muhammad easily persuaded his followers that some of his victories were miraculous and that God sent his angels to fight for him. He was a great warrior and his followers being full of enthusiasm and eager for conquest, glory, and plunder often defeated a very superior force of their enemies and gained victories which may be rightly called wonderful, though not more wonderful than several which had been gained before by others. It is not strange, therefore, that Muhammad should easily have persuaded them that their victories were miraculous and were proof that God was on their side. In all times, indeed, men are to be found who call any extraordinary event miraculous, and interpret it so as to favor their own views and prejudices. If a man's life is preserved from shipwreck or any other danger, in a remarkable manner, many people speak of it as a miraculous escape. Or if a plot is discovered by some curious train of circumstances, or if any extraordinary event takes place, there are persons who at once call it a miraculous interference, and a sign of the divine favor. But it is very rash to pronounce in this manner as to any remarkable event that occurs. A mere wonderful occurrence of itself proves nothing. But when a man does something that is beyond human power to do, or foretells something beyond human foresight, 
and makes this a testimony of his coming from God, it is then and then only that he is properly said to offer a miraculous proof. And accordingly, the works performed by Jesus and his apostles are called in Scripture not merely miracles, but signs, that is, miraculous evidence. For instance, that a violent storm should suddenly cease and be succeeded by a complete calm is something extraordinary, but itself proves nothing. But when the disciples heard Jesus give this command and rebuke the winds and waves, which immediately became still, they justly regarded this as a sign that God was with him. So also, that a person seemingly dead should suddenly revive and rise up is indeed a wonderful event, but of itself is merely a wonder. But when Jesus told the child of Jairus in Luke 8.54 and the widow's son of Nain, Luke 7.14, to rise up, and each of them did so at his word, these became proofs of his divine mission. These were among the works which, as he said, bore witness of him. Again, if anyone who is opposing some particular religious sect or system should suddenly lose his eyesight, it would be very presumptuous to pronounce at once that he was struck blind as a divine judgment. But when St. Paul rebuked Elimus in Acts 13 and declared that the hand of the Lord was upon him and that he should become blind and immediately a darkness did befall upon him, the Roman governor justly regarded this as a sign and believed accordingly in what Paul was teaching. Anything wonderful, in short, is then a miraculous sign when someone performs or foretells it in a manner surpassing human power, so as to make it attest the truth of what he says. And this may fairly be required of anyone professing to be a messenger from heaven. For if a stranger were to come to you professing to bring a message from some friend of yours, you would naturally expect him to show you that friend's handwriting or some other such token to prove that he really was so sent. And so also when a man comes to this country as an ambassador from some other country, he is required first to produce his credentials, as they are called, that is, papers which prove that he is no impostor, but is really commissioned as an ambassador. And it is equally right that men professing to bring a message immediately from God should be required to show what may be called their credentials, that is, such miraculous powers as God alone could have bestowed as a sign or token to prove the reality of their divine commission. But credulous or superstitious people often overlook this rule and are ready to interpret as a miraculous sign any remarkable occurrence, such as a victory or a famine, a thunderstorm, or a sudden recovery from sickness or the like, when these are so explained as to favor or at least not oppose their prejudices and their religious belief they are already inclined to. The apostles, however, found no such prejudices in their favor. They would never have been allowed to explain in their own way anything strange that might happen. On the contrary, all the superstitious credulity of the people was opposed to them. And instead of men's being ready to cry miracle when anything extraordinary occurred and to interpret it in favor of Christianity, the apostles found the most credulous men disposed rather to attribute the Christian miracles to magic. In order to gain converts, therefore, or even to obtain a hearing, they must have shown, as our books tell us they did, many mighty works evidently performed by them as the signs of an apostle. Folks, thanks for joining me for this special bonus edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. For more information, simply head to humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com.